order yourself a copy of my new book, Christmas Past, the fascinating stories behind our favorite holidays traditions. With 26 short chapters, it's like an advent calendar that'll surprise and delight you into a happier holiday season. Available in hardcover and ebook from Lions Press, and as an audiobook from Recorded Books, narrated by yours truly. Find it at all your favorite online booksellers, and remember, it makes a great gift. This story begins in the year 722. It takes place in Germany, and it involves a Norse god, a human sacrifice, an axe-wielding monk, and a tree. Actually, two trees, but we'll get to that in due course. The monk was a young Benedictine named Boniface. Later, he'd become an archbishop and known as the Apostle of Germany. Later still, he'd be martyred and eventually named a saint. But in 722, he was a missionary and a leading figure in the Anglo-Saxon mission to the Germanic parts of the Frankish Empire, and he was very effective at evangelizing and converting people to Christianity. And so the story goes that on Christmas Eve, Boniface and his fellow missionaries were approaching a village where the inhabitants practiced a gruesome wintertime ritual. They would gather round an old oak tree that they had named the Thunder Oak in honor of the god Thor, and they would sacrifice a human being, typically a small child, to Thor. Well, Boniface wasn't having any of that, and so he came up with a plan to prevent the ritual from being carried out, destroy the Thunder Oak, and convert the heathens all at once. His fellow missionaries were convinced that he was likelier to get himself killed than carry out the plan successfully, but Boniface was determined. They arrived not a moment too soon. The villagers had already gathered around the tree, the child was laid out for sacrifice, and the executioner was ready to do his dastardly work, and with a stone hammer resembling that of Thor, no less. But Boniface used his staff to block the executioner's blow mid-swing and miraculously break the hammer. Then Boniface grabbed an axe and started chopping away at the Thunder Oak. And according to the poet Henry Van Dyke's 1897 telling of the story, a strong whirling wind passed over the treetops. It gripped the oak by its branches and tore it from its roots. Backward it fell like a ruined tower, groaning and crashing as it split asunder in four great pieces. Boniface declared that the wood from the felled oak would be used to erect a chapel honoring St. Peter in that same spot. And then, again according to Henry Van Dyke's telling of things, And here said he, as his eyes fell on a young fir tree standing straight and green, with its top pointing towards the stars amid the divided ruins of the fallen oak, Here is the living tree, with no stain of blood upon it, that shall be the sign of your new worship. See how it points to the sky. Let us call it the tree of the Christ child. And so we have the very first Christmas tree which forever after would be perhaps the one symbol more than any other that visually represents the season and spirit of Christmas. Except, our story doesn't actually begin in 722. It goes back way farther than that. And as you can probably imagine, that story about Boniface, if any of it is actually true, is at best a mixture of fact and legend leaning heavily toward legend. The Christmas tree is a Christmas tradition of somewhat mysterious origins certainly of pre-Christian origins, and one that, surprisingly, is still evolving to this very day. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. 
The idea of using some kind of greenery during midwinter festivals predates Christmas and Christianity by a long shot, and there's record of it in many cultures. And that makes it a little difficult to truly find the ancient pedigree of this most prominent of Christmas traditions. Should we trace things as far back as ancient Babylon, or Egypt, or even China, as some have suggested? As we'll see, what eventually becomes our familiar Christmas tree emerged out of a combination of different concepts and beliefs and traditions. So where, or when, should we start things? Well, I'd certainly start with the midwinter solstice. That's Carol Cusack. She's a professor of religious studies at the University of Sydney in Australia. And the world prior to even history, when we're still in what is called prehistory because there aren't any texts, we happen to know that the megalith builders of prehistoric Europe knew when the midsummer and the midwinter solstices were. Put yourself in the shoes of these prehistoric people. Winter conditions are harsh, nothing is growing, and there are more dark hours than light. But if you can pinpoint the solstice... The midwinter solstice is really important because it's part of a drama, the lowest possible point where dark is in the ascendant. But as soon as it passes, everybody knows that the light is coming back. And during these times, greenery like holly and ivy and conifer trees like fir, spruce and pine attracted special attention because they stood out against the bare and colorless winter landscape. Anything that could do that must have something special about it, the ancients reasoned. And so beliefs and superstitions developed about its powers and properties. They were used medicinally and to ward off evil and as a symbol of eternal life or as a good luck charm for a bountiful crop in the coming year. All right, that's one piece of the puzzle, the symbolic use of evergreens during midwinter. Another piece of the puzzle has to do with a certain kind of practice found in pagan religions known as tree veneration. In the ancient world, there was this idea that nature was alive. For example, in ancient Greece, it was believed that every tree had a tree spirit called a hamadryad that lived in it. Because the tree contained a hamadryad, ancient Greeks, and indeed this was carried on into ancient Rome as well, often performed rituals to apologize to the tree if it was necessary to cut it down in order to build a house or make a ship. Because the death of the tree meant the death of the tree nymph, the hamadryad, as well. All right, that's another piece of the puzzle. A picture may be starting to emerge. It's still blurry and incomplete, so let's add yet another piece. Northern pagan communities, Germanic tribes in the continent and also later on the islands of Britain in the early Middle Ages, they had traditions like the Yule Log. Of course, we keep saying that we're talking about the traditions of pre-Christian and prehistoric people. So how did they end up working their way into Christian tradition? Well, it has a lot to do with people like our friend Boniface. These ideas come into Christianity largely because when Christian missions come through Northern Europe, they encounter people who've got sacred groves and holy trees. And for every grove or tree that a missionary cut down, and we have a lot of different accounts in medieval texts of missionaries destroying these holy trees because they thought of them as pagan, 
We also know that they didn't manage to fell all of them and a lot of what we would think of as lower level superstitions or ideas about nature spirits found their way into medieval Christianity because the people were not literate and the conversion was a kind of top-down affair. From there, we go through a sort of messy middle period. In medieval times, a mystery play known as the Paradise Play recounted the story of the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. These plays featured a tree on stage hung with apples and round wafers. Was this an early prototype of our familiar Christmas tree? And what about other examples from the Middle Ages? The idea of ornamenting trees in some way is well known from medieval Catholicism. There were what were called rag trees where people who could write would write on small pieces of cloth or paper and tie their prayers to the trees. These were normally beside holy wells. And people who couldn't write tied rags onto the trees anyway because they thought that if they put all of their intentions and their strong desire to be healed to the saint or to Mary or whoever the well was dedicated to, then their rag would be just as good as one that didn't that had actual writing on it. All of these influences, of course, eventually merge and evolve into the first example of a proper Christmas tree. But exactly when and where did that happen? There are competing claims. I know that there are a few European countries that claim that they've got the first examples of it, but in Northern Europe, some of those examples can definitely be discarded as being unlikely to have been true. People kind of push back traditions in order to have primacy. Estonia in Tallinn, the capital city, they claim that there was a Christmas tree erected in 1441, and that was in the context of the devotions of a merchant guild that had responsibilities to the city. Now, the thing is that that claim is very likely to be untrue. There's also a claim from Latvia that a Christmas tree was erected in 1510. That's closer to what we can kind of really verify through history. However, the emergence of the Christmas tree is commonly thought to correspond to one important historical event. And so the Christmas tree proper doesn't emerge until the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation began in the early 1500s, after which Protestantism spread rapidly across Europe. And there's an important connection between Martin Luther, the seminal figure of the Reformation, and the Christmas tree. One of the objections that Protestants had against Catholics was all of their statues and nativity scenes and pictures of Jesus and Mary and so on. Protestants thought that this was a form of idolatry. So Martin Luther is one of the people who's attributed with using the tree as what he would consider to be a neutral symbol for Christmas. And so, within about 20 years of the start of the Reformation, we have our most convincing claim of the first honest-to-goodness Christmas tree. The main place of origin that has some real weight of historical text behind it is Germany. Now, it's Alsace, which of course is now part of France. There are quite reliable historical records that a Christmas tree was raised in Strasbourg Cathedral in 1539. The tradition grew over the next centuries. Even though the first one was featured in a cathedral, again, they were intended to be neutral. They weren't explicitly holy things. In fact, they'd most commonly be seen in a town's market square. 
Christmas trees spread slowly across Europe, mostly by German royalty. It came to England in the 18th century with Queen Charlotte, who was a German princess who married George III. But the idea was slow to catch on in England, in large part because the royal family was unpopular. But all of that changed in the next century. Queen Victoria has a lot to do with the popularity issue. She has a Christmas tree in 1848. That's not actually that long ago, like it's exactly the middle of the 19th century. Right around that same time, on this side of the Atlantic, Franklin Pierce was credited with bringing the first Christmas tree to the White House. Somewhere along the way, the tree became the place for gifts, either hung on it or placed under it. Certainly by Queen Victoria and President Pierce's time, it was common practice. Victoria's husband, the German-born Prince Albert, brought the tradition to the family, which was famously illustrated in a popular magazine and shown bearing gifts. The illustration appeared during a time when Christmas was undergoing a massive and rapid change. We have a growth in personal affluence, more buying power for cards, presents and stamps and correspondence. And we have also the growth of Santa Claus as a kind of modern mythology, because he's basically 19th century as well. And even though the idea was catching on in England and America, they couldn't really become commonplace in most homes until they could be produced as a commercial item. They would need to be grown on a large scale and sold affordably, and that didn't start happening until the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The first commercial Christmas tree lot appeared in America in 1901. For a tradition that can trace its roots back to prehistoric times, it's interesting to reflect that the modern-day practice of most Christmas-celebrating homes having a Christmas tree is only a little more than five or six generations old. And it never stops evolving. Electric Christmas lights came along at the end of the 19th century. Artificial trees emerged in the 20th. Aluminum trees came and went, and in the modern age, colored trees in rainbow stripes and bold solids are all the rage on social media. Potted and replantable trees are gaining traction with the ecologically minded. But according to a 2013 poll from Pew Research Center, the number of people who put up a Christmas tree at all is declining. What's next for the Christmas tree? Time will tell, but whatever you're doing this Christmas, you're helping to write the next chapter in the story of this beloved tradition. Well, whether you prefer your trees real or artificial, green or playful colors, one thing we can agree on is that there's nothing quite like waking up on Christmas morning to see the gifts beneath the tree. Some of our favorite Christmas memories are formed during those first magical moments on Christmas morning. That's certainly the case for David in Indiana. Greetings, Brian, and the rest of the Christmas Pass family. It's David from Indiana, and I'd like to share with you a Christmas memory from when I was a child. On this particular Christmas morning, I recall jumping out of bed and running into the living room to see what Santa had brought. In the warm glow of the Christmas tree, I saw presents scattered around the room, and in one corner sat a globe on a wooden pedestal with a simple red bow. Upon closer inspection, I discovered that the globe was done in old-time fashion, with oceans of sepia, land masses of muted colors, an ornate compass rose, and the mountains and other elevations were raised above the surface of the globe. Now this may not sound like much, but I recall asking Santa for something similar earlier in the season and was very excited to have received it. This present, although it did not come with batteries or lights or sounds, did take me on many imaginary journeys around the world for years to come. And I'm very grateful to have this memory to be able to share with you. And to that I say, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. 
Do you remember your favorite Christmas gift? Why not share that Christmas memory with the rest of the Christmas Past family? Record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Just keep it reasonably short, clean, and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. There's still plenty of time left in the season to send one. I'll be back again in just a few days with an all-new story from Christmas Past. Until then, let me remind you that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. Many thanks to Carol Cusack, David in Indiana, and to you for listening. Hey, this season is just getting started. Can you believe it's our seventh one? Let's make it the best one yet, and let's do it together as one big Christmas Past family. We can stay connected all throughout the season. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and join our private Christmas Past Facebook group. And you can drop me a line anytime with a Christmas memory or just to say hi. Again, that address is christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. I do love to hear from you, and I try my best to respond to every message I get. And if you're really feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people discover this show? It's as easy as telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do leave a review, I'll send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card as my way of saying thanks. Reach out for details on that. And until we meet again, may your days be merry and bright.